Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Welcome to our study of end times. You have your schedule of the events to take place before and after the return of Jesus the Messiah. We are on Roman numeral 2, and we are looking at H tonight. The one world political economic system comes into full form. And this takes us over to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 18. And I would encourage you to turn your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 18. Now, last week we began our intriguing study of these two mysterious chapters in Revelation, chapter 17 and 18, and they provide a break in the flow of this book, the flow of the action. They explain the meaning of the symbol Babylon. John has on two previous occasions told and spoken of Babylon, but there's been no explanation. Over in chapter 14, verse 8, he first mentions Babylon when he says, And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And then again in chapter 16, in verse 19, We read, And the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. But John doesn't explain what Babylon means. He just mentions it. Well, in chapters 17 and 18, an angel explains the meaning of Babylon. In chapter 17, last week, we saw the mystery of Babylon as it speaks of the one world church that will engulf the world during the reign of the Antichrist, leading up to the midpoint of the tribulation. You remember I said it was called the harlot because it will be a prostituted form of the true church. It will be wealthy, it will have worldwide influence. The mystery religion of Babylon will be at the core of this one world church. Its center will be in Rome. The Antichrist will use the one world church to aid him in gaining world supremacy. Then he will turn on the one world church and will destroy her. Tonight we're going to see another Babylon, Babylon the city. Now, this Babylon represents a one-world government that will be developed during the last years of history, during the tribulation, again leading up to the midpoint of the tribulation, where I believe it comes into its full form and even gets stronger during the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the time known as the Great Tribulation. Now, this Babylon is not a harlot, but a city. 
Because this Babylon is not a religious system, but an economic political system that will dominate the world. Now tonight we're going to look at the one world government. We'll see what the Bible says about it. Then we'll see why God judges the one world government. And then I'll end with giving you an exhortation, uh, you and all Christians, concerning the one world government. First question, does the Bible teach that there's going to be a time that a one world government will reign supreme on earth? We've actually looked at some passages previously that uh, we looked at them rather quickly and we'll go in more detail tonight that indeed teach this truth. The first passage is over in Daniel chapter 2. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And in this dream, he saw a great statue. And let me read that for you. Beginning in verse 31 of Daniel chapter 2. And here Daniel is explaining the dream that the king had. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then David, excuse me, Daniel goes on to interpret the dream in verse 36. And this was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. Wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he's given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. So King Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold in this statue. And what this statue does is it represents the world rulers that will be on the human scene through the time that Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom. And the first world ruler, the golden head, speaks of King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 39, And after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. And that was the Medo-Persian Empire, which was the breast and arms of silver. And then he goes on to say, And another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth, And we believe that that represents the kingdom of Alexander the Great, the bronze stomach. Then comes the iron legs, and there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, like iron that breaks it in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. Now here we believe this represents the Roman Empire. 
then notice so what comes from this Roman Empire, from these legs of iron. And in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so some of the kingdom will be strong, and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. Now here it's believed that these ten toes of the feet represent a yet another kingdom that will come from the Roman kingdom, from the iron legs, and it will be more of a federation or confederation rather than a single kingdom. It will have weak parts and strong parts. It will, as iron and clay don't mix, so these kingdoms will not be a strong united coalition as much as a confederation or a federation of independent states that have come together uh, with some common binding to accomplish their purpose. Now he goes on to say, verse 44, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That's when Christ comes back. While this one world government, this ten nation confederacy is, is ruling with the Antichrist as its head. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all of these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Christ's kingdom will come, destroy the kingdom of the Antichrist, and he will reign forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that stone is Christ, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. You remember the stone crushed everything, and just like chaff before the summer wind, so Christ's kingdom will destroy all other kingdoms, And that rock grew up into a huge mountain. Again, symbolic of the enduring nature of God's kingdom, the kingdom of Christ when he returns. Also in Daniel, there's another dream over in Daniel chapter 7 that tells us basically the same truth. A dream of, again, four beasts are seen in this dream, not a statue with four parts, but four separate beasts. Daniel 7, beginning in verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And we have said this is the Antichrist arising among these ten nations, 
ten kings, ten horns. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. Evidently, he must, by force, conquer three of the kings, or three of the nations, while the others will acquiesce to him. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boast. All right, now over also, verses 19 and following, we see again uh, this fourth kingdom. Then I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron, its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns are on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely the horn which had eyes and mouth uttering great boast, and which was large, larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And for the ten horns out of the, this kingdom, ten kings will arise. Again, that's why we said it would be a ten-nation confederacy from the old Roman Empire or a Mediterranean confederacy, but it will be from the roots of the old Roman Empire. And out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. Another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings. And he, that is that one who has subdued the three kings, we believe to be the Antichrist, he will speak out against the Holy High, Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in the law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, that's three and a half. Time is one. Times is two and a half times. So that is represents the three and a half years, the second three and a half years of the tribulation, the great tribulation, where the Antichrist exercises his full authority and power until Christ returns and destroys him. And so from those passages it does indeed teach that as we approach the end time, there will be a ten-nation confederacy with an outgrowth of the Roman Empire. And this ten-nation confederacy will develop into the world government that will dominate the world for a brief time. Now, by one world government, I do not mean that it will be the only government in existence. Not every village and not every hamlet has to be under this government. But it will have world influence and it will be the most powerful in the world and it will dominate the world. So in that sense, it will be a one world government. Now, How will the Antichrist be able to seize the world's allegiance? Well, you remember... As a result of the six seals of God's wrath that we saw over in chapter 6 of Revelation, the world will be in an awful condition. Uh, they will have seen war and famine 
and death of over 1.7 billion people. There will be diseases. There will be great cosmic upheaval. Very likely a nuclear exchange. The uh, economy of the world will be greatly upset. The ecological nature of the world will be greatly upset. The world will be in such a condition, such a situation, that they will be desirous of anyone who can offer them any hope at all. And they will gladly receive one who has promised them a solution. Have we not witnessed in the last six months, even in the conditions that we have experienced, which compared to the conditions of the end days are nothing, but let somebody come and promise hope, promise change, and they will flock to that person, even proclaim them to be a Savior and a Messiah. So it's not a far leap at all in our minds uh, to see this happen. Uh, indeed, this was much like the condition in Nazi Germany prior to Hitler's rise. Uh, they were under great economic depression and things were bad and people were looking for anybody who can offer them a hope. And so biblically, I don't think it's any question that the world the Bible teaches is going to be that one world government at the end. Now the question arises, what about today? Do we see any of the seeds of this one world government beginning to sprout? Well, I think we do. Uh, we talked about it in the sense of the call that's gone out from France, from Russia, from China, and other nations for there to be one world currency. And a part of this one world government will be this one world economic system. Well, it only stands to reason if there ever comes a day that there's a one world currency, then there's got to be a body who will regulate that currency who will make rules and policies concerning that currency, right? Well, if it's a worldwide currency, then the policies and decisions of that body are going to have a worldwide effect. And they, again, it's not a far leap from this body having control of the economics of the world, it having control of the legislation of the world as well. And there have been many calls in recent history for a new world order. Mikhail Gorbachev was the first world leader to come out publicly with the talk of a new world order. And he did so nearly two years before George Bush caught the vision in his historic address to the United Nations on December the 7th, 1988, 20 years ago. 21 years ago, the Soviet prime minister made this dogmatic and even prophetic statement. He said, further global progress is now possible only through a quest for universal consensus in the movement towards a new world order. In 1990, uh, George Bush expressed the hope that the foundation for the new world order would be laid in Helsinki. 
and that it will be established under the United Nations. At the news conference with Gorbachev following their historical meeting, President Bush declared optimistically, if the nations of the world acting together continue as they have been, we will set in place the cornerstone of an international order more peaceful than any we have known. In a statement to the United Nations Business Council in September of 1994, David Rockefeller said, We are on the verge of a global transformation. All we need is the right major crisis, and the nations will accept a new world order. Now, even though the power of a small group of international banks, bankisters is colossal today, according to Harvard and Princeton Professor Emeritus Carol Quigley, they're finding it increasingly difficult to conceal their true nature. Now, this Professor Emeritus of Harvard and Princeton, Carol Quigley, says this of this worldwide banking and worldwide bankers. Their aim is nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. The system was to be controlled in a feudalistic fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences. So, I've only read you the things that uh, the main broad strokes. Uh, you can go on the Internet and put in one world government and find a lot of information. Some of it out there is probably reliable. Some of it's not. You'll have to judge. But there are speeches made by pre both President Bush's and, and uh, by um, Henry Kissinger and others that talk about the need for the one world order. So I don't think it's any question. Biblically, it's prophesied we will be moving in that direction. If you look at what's going on in the world today, in the global economic, global political scene, geopolitical scene, you can see that indeed we're moving in that direction. It seems more so than, than I can find out in past days. Next question, why will God judge the one world government. We're back over in Revelation. We're back in chapter 18. First, he will judge the one world government because it has become a seedbed of satanic and demonic worship. Verse 1. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke to me saying, Come here. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And I have just read from the wrong chapter. I'm pausing so I can tell where they edited out. Chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority... And the earth was illumined with his glory, and he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And she has become a dwelling place of demons 
and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. I interpret this passage to be speaking about the satanic and demonic worship that the one world government will promote after the Antichrist destroys the one world church. Remember, he will go into the temple in Jerusalem at the midpoint of the tribulation and he will put a stop to the sacrifices and he will proclaim himself to be God. Then he turns on the one world church and destroys it and proclaims himself God and calls on people to worship him. I believe at this point he will be possessed by Satan himself and he will call his followers to worship him. And I believe that that worship will be saturated with every kind of demonic and occultic practice imaginable. From horoscopes to drugs to seances to immorality to Ouija boards to psychics to witchcraft to New Age teachings, you name it, it's going to be there. I believe it will be the sum total of all the satanic worship of the ages will culminate in this Worship promoted by the one world government of the Antichrist. Now these practices have always been an abomination unto God as we see over in Deuteronomy chapter 18 as God was talking to His people who were preparing to go into the promised land where these satanic practices were being performed. He warns them against these practices and talks about how they are an abomination unto Him. Deuteronomy 18, beginning with verse 10. There shall not be among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or anyone who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. These things have been and are an abomination to God. And because the one world government will be so involved in these abominations, God will judge the one world government. A second reason He will judge the one world government is the one world government will corrupt other nations and peoples. Verse 3. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Remember, we talked about that immorality being spiritual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, been involved in her satanic worship. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Now, since the economy will be controlled by the one world government, It will entice other nations and leaders to join it with the promise of great economic gain. And the nations will gladly join this satanic religion of the Antichrist and pledge allegiance to the Antichrist in order to gain economically. Their greed and their lust for worldly goods will make the nations eager to join the one world government and thus participate in its spiritual immorality. God has always condemned the love of money as an abomination. And 
1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare of many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And these will love money so much that it will lead them to forsake all that is good and join themselves to the Antichrist and this one world government that opposes God in everything that is holy. And therefore God is going to pour out His judgment on the one world church because, excuse me, one world government because they will corrupt other nations and peoples. The third reason God's going to judge a one world government is because the one world government will seek its own glory. Verse 7. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning, for she says in her heart, I sit on a queen, as a queen and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. And so she thinks she is immortal and invincible. This one world government will be the height of arrogance and self-conceit and self-glorification. For the one world government, there is no God but the Antichrist. And she boasts of her allegiance and her blasphemy and her Christ's rejection. One world government would say, yes, we did it. We're great. Our ingenuity has accomplished this. Pride has always been an abomination unto God. And the one world government will be the epitome of arrogance and pride. Proverbs 6.16 says, There are six things which the Lord hates, yet seven are an abomination unto Him, haughty eyes. God will judge a one world government for its pride. Fourthly, God will judge the one world government because... She will devalue human life, verses 12 and 13. And we'll begin with verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and bodies and human souls. Look at that. Literally bodies, not slaves, and souls of men not human lives. I don't think it's simply going to be a return to slavery. I think this may well be an indication that one commodity that this one world government will have will be bodies. And these bodies will be sold. I believe they will be, may well be, cloned bodies that are sold for the organs. 
We are not far at all from the time that people will clone bodies so there will be organs, kidneys, hearts, other organs they may need for transplant and it will be a perfect match because it will be your clone. Even now, people are taking the, the stem cells from the umbilical cord of babies because they say there's great potential there to help cure for uh, Alzheimer's and some other degenerative diseases that these cells can be implanted and replace the other cells. So I believe it may well be speaking here of this cloning of human bodies. And I'm not at all convinced that a cloned body will have a soul because God gives the spirit and soul. And God gives that, I believe, when he brings about the conception. And a clone will not be a product of conception, but a product of taking the cells and the already come from conception, causes them to grow. So I'm not convinced at all that a cloned person would have a soul or spirit. I don't know, but I'm, I'm not convinced they would. But that body then might well be sold and used for organ transplant. So that may be what they're talking about here. And it may be because of that devalue of life or the souls of men now, I don't know quite what they're talking about there. But whatever it is, it's going to be seen as a commodity to be bought and sold. And that is devaluing human life. And we think we're progressing forward in our view of human beings. But the question is, are we really? Materialism and humanism always devalue the basic worth of man. Materialism says man only is a means to a gain when he ceases to produce, then do away with him. Humanism says only those who are helpful and strong are valuable. It's right to kill the weak, the unborn. Infanticide's okay. Euthanasia's okay. Because they're not productive. But in the end times, a one world government will involve this commodity of bodies and the souls of men and God would judge her because of that fifth the one world government will persecute and kill God's people verse 24 and in her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth and naturally God will vindicate his people he will bring justice for his people and a part of that will be the pouring out of his judgment on the one world government. Now we will see that judgment as we get to the last part of the three and a half year of the tribulation. But on your outline, we don't come to that until we get down to Roman numeral three, uh, M. So that's right before Jesus comes back. But I wanted to introduce you to the one world government and tell you why God is going to judge it. Now, what's God's word for you and for me as Christians? Well, look in verse 4 of 
Revelation 18. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins, and that you may not receive of her plagues. And one of the main sins of the one world government will be materialism and humanism. Uh, and we as Christians must be careful not to get caught up in the materialism and humanism of our day. We must make sure that we are not entangled in the lust for power and wealth that captivates the world system. What would happen to you if our economy collapsed? What has happened to you since it's collapsed as much as it has? Where is your security? It will reveal to us how much we place our security in money, won't it? How much we love money. How much the love of money controls us becomes evident when we go through a financial crisis. Has the love of money caused you to forsake godly principles? So we need to always keep ourselves totally surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, and we need to continually take stock of our own attitudes toward materialism, toward money, and to make sure we're not caught up in the world system that is only going to get more and more uh, materialistic and humanistic. All right, that concludes our study, and I uh, have time for a question or two. Yeah.